the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 482 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We have got Joshua Becker on the program today. First time, almost 500 episodes in, we've ever tackled minimalism, but it's about time. And I'm not a minimalist, but I'm being sucked in a little bit, at least to simplifying things. And we're going to talk about why that actually matters and how it can impact your leadership. Going to talk to Joshua today about becoming minimalist, clutter, sunk cost bias, and eliminating the things that keep you from your true purpose going to be a fascinating conversation. Today's episode is brought to you by Glue. You can join more than 2,000 churches who are already using Glue to multiply their outreach efforts and get connected to the needs of your city by going to Glue. That's G-L-O-O-O dot U-S. Make sure you check that out. And by Remodel Health. Register for their free webinar on understanding the 401k of health benefits. Go to remodelhealth.com slash webinar for that. Well, Joshua Becker is the creator of Simplify Magazine, founder of The Hope Effect. He is also the author of Things That Matter, Overcoming Distractions to Pursue a More Meaningful Life. He is the best-selling author of The More of Less and The Minimalist Home, and the founder of Becoming Minimalist, a website dedicated to inspiring others to find more by owning less. The website welcomes over 1.5 million readers each month. That's very impressive and has inspired millions around the world to consider the practical benefits of owning fewer possessions. He's a former pastor as well, so we get into that a little bit. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Uh, I'm somebody who doesn't like clutter, but my life gets cluttered like everybody else's, and I'm kind of getting tugged in. So see what you do with this episode as well. So question for you, are you looking to increase your impact and serve people in your city? Glue, that's G-L-O-O, is a new kind of outreach platform designed to help your church reach people in your city who typically don't go to church, which is exactly what you want to do. And they do it in a way that helps you save time, activates your team, and increases your impact to serve and reach more new people each week. It's like having or adding a full-time outreach person without hiring a single person. More than 2,000 churches are already using Glue to multiply their outreach efforts and getting connected to the needs of their city. So here's how it works. Glue and their kingdom-minded partners run ongoing campaigns on topics like relationships, marriage, loneliness, faith, anxiety on Facebook, Instagram, and Google, and radio and TV as well. People encounter a message of hope and an invitation to connect. Once they ask to get connected with a church, people get introduced to you so you can do what you do best, connect with them, and you don't worry about managing a lot of extra work. Connections are made right inside Glue, making it easy to use in-app messaging to get in touch, assign connections to team members, and update their connection status so nothing slips through the cracks. So you can get started now by going to Glue. That's G-L-O-O dot U-S. For a limited time, there's no credit card required. It takes less than 10 minutes to create your profile. Head on over to Glue.us, G-L-O-O dot U-S, and join over 2,000 churches nationwide, supercharging their online outreach using Glue. Now, Remodel Health, a lot of you, you guys have saved millions of dollars by going to Remodel Health. Well, it continues. Record numbers of American employees are changing their jobs for better benefits. And if you haven't yet checked out what Remodel Health is, like so many listeners have, check it out. 
Because group health insurance costs go up every year. And the question is, well, how do you find something better for your team without breaking your budget? The good news is that American health benefits have gone through a huge change. And it's the same kind of change that in the 80s saw pension plans get replaced by 401k plans. Employers saved tons of money. Employees got better benefits. Now, Remodel Health wants to introduce you to that. So because you're listening to this podcast, it means you love to learn, which is perfect because learning is your first step. Remodel Health wants to explain it all to you. They're offering a free educational webinar that will teach you everything you need to know to understand the 401k of health benefits. Register today by going to remodelhealth.com slash webinar. That's remodelhealth.com slash webinar to learn about this huge change in employee benefits that could help you care for your team better than ever. And now let's dive into my conversation with Joshua Becker. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to it have you. It is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. What took you so long? What took you so long to have yeah, me? Yeah, I on? know. Tell me about that. Well, we didn't know each other. We got introduced by a mutual friend. So that's that helps, fantastic. Right? Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Appreciate your work. Appreciate that's everything great. you do. Honestly, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to get to meet you online and get to talk a little well, bit. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to meet you too, and uh, learning a lot from you as well. So um, you become a leader in the minimalist space, if I can call it that. What attracted you to it in the first place? There's got to be a backstory. There is. I suppose the the question, um, was I attracted to the minimalist space, is different than was I attracted to minimalism. And I I wasn't necessarily attracted to the, the space. I don't even think there was much of a space 13 years uh -huh. ago. But uh, certainly attracted to the lifestyle of minimalism. My my neighbor introduced me to it. I was living in Vermont, and uh, I was cleaning out my garage one Saturday morning, and it took hours and hours. Uh, my five-year-old son was playing alone in the backyard, and I just complained to my neighbor, like, I can't believe how much time is going into this garage and taking care of all my stuff. And she said, you know, my daughter's a minimalist. Maybe you should try it out. And I was hooked. Like as soon as I heard the word, just looking at the pile of things in my garage, I spent all day taking care of. And then there's my son swinging alone on the swing set in the backyard. And I think suddenly realized not only were the things I owned not making me happy, which no one says their things aren't making them happy, right? We all say our things aren't making them happy, but just that second step of, hey, wait a minute, all the things I own are actually taking me away from the very thing that does bring me happiness, meaning, joy, significance, fulfillment. So that's what that's what introduced me to minimalism. And then I started writing about it and um, has grown ever since then. You know, I think we've all been at that place where we get overwhelmed by stuff. So it's interesting because a lot of people would say, well, I'll just clean the garage and move on. There must have been like a deeper attraction to it. And we're going to get into the whole meaning piece and relationship and everything. But why didn't you just become, oh, I'm going to ignore that person or that's really cool for you? Like, was there something, like what drew you? Yeah, that, that is a great way to phrase the question. Uh, they say that the greatest seed of change in our lives is discontent. And I would say, as I look back on that moment, I mean, sometimes I think we're just prepared for the right words at the right time and they just a message I could have heard on any other Saturday and it just wouldn't have had the impact as it did that specific day for whatever reason. But as I can look back, I can see always a little discontent with my with my finances that, hey, I'm 
I'm making more money than I made 10 years ago, but I don't feel any farther ahead. It seems like I should mm. be farther ahead. Why am I not? Or uh, I was giving away uh, about 10%, but it felt like I was just spending more on myself than I should be sp- needing. Like I wanted to be more generous than I was. And so I just think there's a little, a little bit of financial discontent. Like what am I missing here that I can't seem to to get ahead. And then um, I like to say I was growing discontented over the focus of my life's energy, uh, which I think kind of came to a head on that day of, hey, you're right. I'm just wasting so much time taking care of stuff that doesn't matter at the expense of uh, things that really do matter. I, certainly as my kids were getting older, five and two, and I could, uh, I was a pastor at the time. And so there was definitely um, uh, a gap between what I thought God was calling me to do with my life and what I was actually living out day by day. And uh, minimalism seemed to provide that answer um, to connect those two worlds a little bit more. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. I, I always, my kids are older now, they're in they're 26 and 30, but I remember that stage where you don't even need to buy stuff. Stuff just accumulates, right? Like, it's like, where did all this come from? And it's gifts from friends and family and birthdays and Christmas and freebies and all that stuff. And we are drowning in stuff. I, I don't know whether this is still true or not, but for years, the self-storage industry was one of the fastest growing industries in America. And you see them all over the place. It's like, okay, we're paying, I don't know how much it costs. I don't have one, but you know, a hundred bucks a month to store stuff that, that we have so much stuff, we can't even yeah. look at it. So we pay you money to put it over there. What, what is like, our great grandparents would look back on this and went, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Like talk about this phenomena culturally. Yeah, you know, when you think about it, not just our grandparents, but any, any human being at any point in history, I think would look at how we're living our lives now and it would be incredibly foreign to them. Like human beings have yeah. never owned as much stuff as we do today. Uh, I just looked up those self-storage stats yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, the average American home has tripled in size in the last 50 years, uh, and still 10.6% of Americans rent off-site storage. So not only are our homes three times as big as they used to be, uh, 10.6% of us, and over 40% of people say that they can't park in their garage without some sort of inconvenience trying to shuffle around the boxes or whatever it might be. So it is pretty. What, what percent is that? Uh, yeah, a little over 40. Me. What I think is it? 25% of people can't park in their garage and over 40% say there's so much stuff in the garage that it's a pain uh, to have to park inside of it. But Well, that was my gift of the summer of 2021 to myself. I've got two cars in the garage just today at lunch. I would say, but you know what? It was a lot yeah. of decluttering. It was a whole lot of like, okay, this is from five years ago, and I'm a little bit of a neat freak, but the stuff yeah. just accumulates. And uh, even this at lunch today, I was saying to my wife, okay, why don't we get the, the contractors back in? We'll take out this wall, make it a little bit easier, get rid of some more stuff, create some more storage space. But, you know, sometimes when you think of minimalism, like for those, the, the few people who are watching via video, we do have a YouTube presence, most is audio. But like, it's not like you're sitting, you know, with a cardboard box propping up your laptop, you know, on on a bench in this white 
warehouse type environment. You have a looks like you're on a sofa. You've got a laptop. You've got um, some shelves with some really nice pictures and and things on them. Where's the line, or is there a line, or or how how does that work out? Like how much stuff? I feel like it's a Berenstein Bears book. How much stuff is too much? <laughs> That'd be stuff? a great Berenstein Bears book. And by the way, people yeah. should be watching you on video. You're a good looking guy. Why? I mean, why waste their time just on audio? That's good to know you're on uh, YouTube. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I so. Um, I started writing about minimalism 13 years ago, and I think back then, um, minimalism was pretty extreme. Uh, People trying to live with less than 100 things or trying to live out of backpacks, moving into 200-square-foot homes or living off the grid or whatever. Like, these were the people writing about minimalism, and I don't know if I... I don't know if I ruined the word or if if I helped with the word a little bit, but when I heard minimalism, I was... I was in to own less stuff uh, because I could see how my stuff had become a distraction. But my goal was never to prove how few things I could own. Like it wasn't, I'm just going to get down to a cardboard box and no mattress. It was, it was much more, um, I think, values focused in terms of Okay, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to accomplish with my life? Where am I going to find meaning in life? And then what are all the things that I need to keep in order to do that? Like a minimalist farmer is going to own something different than a minimalist writer or a minimalist mechanic or a minimalist pastor or a minimalist CEO or a minimalist teacher. Like, There are different things that we need to own in order to fulfill our role in the world. It's just all the other things that we're not just accumulating, but chasing after that become the distraction from that role. Um, So I always, my definition of minimalism is and and became and is, I call it, uh, the intentional promotion of the things I most value by removing anything that distracts me from it. And certainly being a family of four, um, working at a church at the time, having small groups that meet in my home and uh, doing premarital counseling and wanting to have dinners with the future bride and groom. Like there were some things I needed to own in order to do those things well. Uh, but there, were, But most of the stuff that I had accumulated wasn't needed for that. And it was actually keeping me from fulfilling that role rather than contributing to it. How does it keep you, I want to drill down on that. How does it keep you from fulfilling that role? Uh, yeah, um, as, I, as I write in the book, um, uh, three, there's, there's a lot of ways, but um, uh, things that matter, I write about how the distraction of possessions uh, keeps us from our purpose. And really three ways that I narrow down, uh, money, time, and focus. Um, money being... Everything that we buy costs us money. Uh, it costs us money to buy it, but it also costs us money to care for and keep and store and bigger houses and storage units and whatever it might be. So just all the money that we waste buying things that we don't need is all money we would like to have back. As as I say, look around your house, all that clutter used to be money. Um, and, uh, and it distracts our time. Um, all the things we own take a... They take up not just physical space in our home, but they take up mental space in our mind. They have to be cleaned and organized and managed and repaired and replaced, or 
how much time we spend working just to earn the money so we can do the shopping to go buy the thing that we bring home to clean and organize and manage and maintain for the rest of our lives. So um, uh, Randy Elkhorn says, every increased possession adds increased anxiety onto our lives. And uh, I think that it is so very true. And most people, at least this is what I learned, uh, most people don't realize how much of a burden their possessions have become until they begin to remove them. And until you begin to get rid of those things that you don't need and you start to see how much your life, how much your life is freed up. So money and time, but honestly, probably the biggest one for most people nowadays is um, focus and just how possessions become the object of our uh, affection or attention, how much time we think about owning the thing that we wish we had, or we're trying to figure out how to get the thing or save the money to buy the thing. And although we would never sit across the table from somebody and say that our greatest goal in life is to just own as much stuff as we possibly can, we still just find ourselves thinking about, I wish I had the bigger house and I wish I had the nicer car and the trendier fashion. And, oh, I really wish we could buy new furniture. And um, when when that becomes our our focus, I think we become distracted from those things that matter most, um, obviously. So I want to get to the philosophical part because one, and thank you for the privilege of blurring your book too. Uh, yeah. But I really, I, I want to get to the practical because I think we do have an accumulation bias. I had a guest on the podcast, oh, I don't know, 300, 400 episodes ago. Andrew Mellon, he's in New York City and he's a personal organizer. I should have him back at some point. What got me is I saw him say online one day, he just said, clutter is deferred decision-making. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a leadership thing. It's like, I don't know what to do with, you know, this glasses case. So I haven't got a place for it. So I'm going to put it there on my desk. And then, you know, that's what we do with everything. We don't have a place for our keys. We don't have a place for this. And we end up with like five different places in the house for food where we have a pantry, but then we have a kitchen, but then we have some stored in the basement and some stored in a closet and on and on and on it goes. And he just says, and I find that true. I find clutter to be stressful, but I also know that I naturally get very cluttered. So for people who, and we we do have a TV show also called Hoarders. So we know that this gets to be a big issue with some people. So for the leader who isn't immediately attracted the way you were that day when you were cleaning out your garage, what what would you say to him or her as they're like, and I'll give you one more example. I'm sort of framing a question or trying to frame a question. You know, sunk cost bias. So I had four bikes while I was doing the garage organization uh, project. I had four bikes and I'm like, gosh, they're not going to fit. Like I can't do the bike and the stuff I need for the boat and for the winter we're big winter sports people and carry four bikes. There's only two of us who live here. And my wife and I have a road bike. We have a mountain bike. I had not ridden my mountain bike, I don't know, in three, four, five years, maybe. But there was this idea. It cost me almost $1,000 over a decade ago. It was brand new. There was nothing wrong with it. And then one day, I just pulled the guy who was helping me with some landscaping, pulled him aside. I said, you and your son love to ride bikes, right? He's like, yeah. I said, here you go take this bike, take that bike. I'll tune them up for you. I don't know. There was such a release in that moment. It felt good to give something away. And it's like, have I missed my bike? No. And if I want it, I can go buy another one, Mm -hmm. right? Like what is it that keeps us 
hanging on to that sunk cost bias clutter that we often keep around, even if we're not using it. Yeah. Um, man, so many reasons. And I, I don't know if I know uh-huh. the the specific reason for any specific person, because I think it's probably different for, for everybody. Like some people who um, grew up uh, riding bikes with their parents or grew up riding bikes with their kids, and now they're in a different season of life, but that you know, the bike reminds them of that time that they almost wish they mm. wish they had back, but they're in a new season of life. But holding on to it allows them to hold on to that season a little bit. Um, you know, one thing you said um, about, you know, people who hear this and are maybe not so drawn to the idea. I honestly, I, I think most people who um, hear about minimalism are are drawn to it in some way. Like even you could say, I'm not even a cluttered person, but even thinking about this, you're right. There's some things that I could sort out and I some things that oh, I could 100%. get rid of. And I think most people tend to uh, tend to be that way. Um, so gosh, uh, sunk cost, uh, where to get started, um, so many different things. I, I, I think that um, concerning the the sunk cost one, because I I I talk to people about this a lot and, and help them through this. And I always use that phrase sunk cost um, because I learned about it in accounting where yeah. you don't make a business decision based on expenses from that you from last year. So if you bought the printing press 10 years ago for $20,000 and there's a new printing press for 5,000 that prints things twice as fast, you can't decide to buy the new one based on how much money you spend on the old one. Like that shouldn't factor into your decision if this is a good investment or not. And a lot of people do get caught up in the, hey, I spent so much money on this stuff. This was such an expensive bike or um, we bought the really nice house or I bought all these clothes or this was for a a past season of life. And the reality is you can't go back and and change the past. I mean, you can't go back and, and get the money back, but you can't base your decision on how do I make the most from my current season of life based on what you bought or utilized in a past season of life. So who are you today? What are you trying to accomplish? And just because you use that bike in the past doesn't mean it's serving a role, serving a, serving a purpose, adding value to your life today. And if it's not, then there's probably someone who can find value in it. And you're going to find, I just think, more personal joy, more personal fulfillment in knowing that that bike is being used by someone uh, rather than holding on to it for yourself. So that was a long answer. I don't know if I got to any of that question. That's a great but. answer. Um, I, w- I want to stay in the practical for a minute. So another thing Andrew and I talked about in that episode was uh, just over there under the stairs outside of my office, We've got a couple of Rubbermaid totes and they're full of like medals that our kids got. They were pretty active in music and sports and, you know, um, probably art projects that they did in first grade, second grade, that kind of thing. What do you do about memorabilia and things like that? Now, ours are just probably a couple of totes at the most, Mm -hmm. but... What what is, what is your thought about stuff that people hang on to for just that sentimental? I uh, I think you nailed it perfectly. Uh, you're you're living exactly what I would exactly what I would advise someone to do. Um, uh, a museum 
A museum isn't enjoyable because every piece of artwork ever created hangs on the walls. Like a museum is enjoyable because someone has curated the collection to this is the most meaningful art. Uh, this was um, uh, an important part in an artist's life or in the history of art. And so these are the ones that we're going to show people how people changed and how art changed. And um, when I look back at you know, things that I've saved from my kids' childhood. It's, okay, what's, like, what are the most meaningful pieces? What did they work hard on? What showed, like, a, a significant growth in, you know, their writing or their their schoolwork? This was a class that she loved. And so, you know, like, if people say, hey, I've got, you know, all this memorabilia from my kids' childhood, I'll just say, you know, try to cut it down to one box or try to cut it in mm -hmm. half. And in doing that, usually you're able to separate the the most important from the just kind of important. Like if I were to say, even with your totes, like what are the three most important? You, you can keep only three things from that tote. Like it, you'd probably be surprised how quickly you could discover, like, these are the three things that mean the most to me from my from my kids' childhood. Um, and, not, you know, not that you just have to keep three things, but like um, my grandfather passed away in December, um, probably the man I looked up to as much as anyone, including my dad. And he passed away in December, 99 and a half. And um, the question became, what what am I going to keep of his and I just remember going through his house and thinking, what, like, what is the one thing that most represented, most represents my grandpa? Like, what's the one thing that represents the values I want to be true of me, represents the, the life that he lived? Um, he was a shepherd boy growing up, and then he was a pastor when he got older. And so there's a, mm. a figurine of a, a little shepherd carrying a sheep. And I'm like, that's it. I'm like, that is who my grandpa was uh, to me. And it exemplifies so much of what I wanted. And so they didn't end up in a tote in the back, in the basement, but it's a figurine. And I put it right in my living room and see it every single day. And I think in that way, it uh, almost bring more value to it by keeping a, a smaller amount of things. So anyway. Oh, that's super helpful. Yeah. I think Andrew said something again, I'm going back three or four years in my memory bank here, but I think he said, you know, those possessions are not your grandfather. Mm -hmm. Those possessions, those memorabilia is not your children and it's not the relationship. I found that tremendously freeing. And uh, just note the file, I think I'm going to do some more uh, decluttering this mm -hmm. weekend. You've really got my juices going. So this is Hey, good. very, hey, how do you determine? Before you switch gears, yeah. like very practically, um, the advice that I give to people is to uh, start with the easiest stuff first. Uh, a lot of people hear about, minimizing or decluttering. They're like, you're right. I got to go through the attic. I got to go through the garage, but those are, I got to go through the totes of all the kids stuff. And those are like really difficult places to start. You know, I think if you just take everything out of your car that doesn't need to be there, you could probably, you could probably <laughs> do it in like 15 minutes, but the next time you get in your car, you can feel the difference and sense that it feels better. And then, you know, declutter your living room or your bedroom, um, your bathroom, like these easier spaces that I think we can recognize right away and kind of build up to some of those more difficult spots. So here you are. How many years is this in the 13, journey? For you 13, know, Joshua? Years, 13, 13 years. 13 years. 13 years. 
What have been, so there, I imagine there's probably a settling point. You probably, you know, went through a couple of years where you were really getting into it. Uh, you experimented a little bit. You might, you, I don't know whether you've settled, but, you know, you definitely have a default now. Um, I haven't seen, you know, a ton of your work like other people would, but what I've seen, you always seem to be in a black t-shirt. Is that <laughs> intentional? Do you, do you keep things like right down to the wardrobe? Walk us through some very practical things about where you've landed in a minimalist lifestyle. Yeah, I think um, uh, clothes, I think, is probably as good of an example as as anything else. I probably started with, like, I don't know, 100, 100 to 120 articles in my clo- in my closet. And I went through it and just got rid of what I didn't think I needed and cut down to, like, 60. And then I uh, stumbled across this thing called uh, Project 333. Uh, Courtney Carver started this idea. And you experiment by wearing just 33 articles of clothing for three months. So you're not throwing it, you're not burning everything in the backyard, but just for three months, I'm just going to wear 33 things. And it forced me to become very intentional about, okay, uh, what matches what? What do I what do I love to wear? I'm going to be wearing these things over and over again for three months, and I I cut it down to that space. And I, Carrie, I just loved it. I, honestly, like really? I went, I thought I liked my closet with all these things in it. I cut it in half, and I'm like, I really kind of like this at sixty things. And then I cut it in half again, and I'm like, this is so much better than it was before. Everything matches. Everything. Everything is my favorite. I don't waste any money on clothes that I don't need to waste on clothes. I could wear anything in my closet on any given day. Literally, there's no morning where I open up the closet. I'm like, what am I going to wear today? I try on a shirt and I don't like it. And I take it off and I try something else. And I'm asking my wife, do I wear these shirt, this shirt with these pants? And do these shoes match with this? It's just, this is what I wear. And, um, uh, a writer, I forget her name, um, she once said, uh, the easiest way to become iconic uh, is to wear the same thing every day. And I just loved that mentality of, hey, I'm kind of known for wearing uh, typically a black V-neck t-shirt. I have a couple long sleeve black shirts and it's a little bit chilly here in Phoenix today. So wearing a, a long sleeve uh, black shirt. I also have a couple white ones, but they all match the the same pants and it's just an example of um, of we do laundry about once a week, so you know I have enough stuff to get through the week, and uh, seems to seems to work out quite right. Um, dishware, coffee mugs, I, I just think cookware, like all these things where we we just get th- caught into thinking more is going to be better. And man, just a study was done recently how the kind of the the human's brain's default is to solve a problem. I'm going to add more things to solve the problem. And we don't think of mm. how solving, how removing things actually solves the same problem. Um, it was, you're going to change the subject, but, or uh, ask a different question, but they, they did this survey with uh, Legos and they had um, two Lego things together. And the, the challenge was, to make this one match this one or to make the two match together. And in like 80 to 90% of the cases, the people solved it by adding Lego pieces to the one that needed more to match the other, 
as opposed to those who would just remove a few pieces to make it match and um, started kind of diving into this idea of, you know, do we solve problems by adding things or do we solve problems by removing things? And the implications are not just the clothes we wear, but how we run our businesses, how we uh, disciple people, how we lead people, the the work that we do, the businesses that we run, you know, all these aspects. Let's just have another meeting as opposed to, well, what if we had a shorter meeting? Would that solve the problem as well? We don't even tend to think of it that way. No, we don't think about removal mm-hmm. a lot. We always we always try to solve by addition. I'm wondering if you can take us through your kitchen. Um, that is another source of clutter, worry, add, add, add. You know, a lot of us have become even better at ordering online in the last two years than we were before. So it's just easier to get that new salt and pepper shaker, that new frying pan, whatever you're looking at. What are some choices you, and you've got two kids, Joshua? Two kids. Two kids. Okay. So family of four, what is a kitchen? And I assume you still have people over. You're not in direct, you know, pastoral ministry, but you're probably hosting, you're social, all that stuff. So what what does a minimalist kitchen My like? uh, My mother-in-law is with us for two weeks right now. So I, yes, we still have people over. We still have people. <laughs> yeah, no, still host uh, small groups as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, how, how do you how do I do that over? Um, uh, the, I was I was really worried about the kitchen, um, and then yeah. I, I ran across an article uh, by Mark Bittman, um, the minimalist chef in uh, the New York Times. The Mark Bittman, you can still Google it. Uh, a no frills kitchen still cooks. That's the name of the article. I send everybody to it. A no frills kitchen still cooks. Well, we'll link to it and, in the show notes. Uh, here he is, yeah. this professional chef, and he uh, lists the only thirty-three items, or the only thirty-three tools that you need in your kitchen to prepare any dish that you want. Uh, and so it's like you know, a couple stainless steel bowls, a couple different knives, a couple different frying pans, and. Um, and we, and he says, if you have these 33 things, you can cook any meal that can be made anywhere else. You don't need all the frilly unitasker things. You, this is, if you know how to use a knife, you can prepare, uh, you can prepare all these meals. And so that was what I used to declutter our kitchen and, uh, minimize the kitchen. I went in and I just found the 33 things that he recognized and I put them all on the table and then everything else, I said, well, this professional chef says, I don't need any of these things. Uh, there's the egg yolk separator and I don't, I don't, I for coffee scoop, I, uh, four or five, six different spatulas, like all these different duplicate items. And uh, I said, well, there's a few things that I kind of like using. And so I kept a few of the things besides the 33, but everything else I just felt free. Like I felt like I didn't need to keep these things and maybe I'd have to become better at using a knife. Um, but I eventually did. And, and then here's the best thing I loved. I, I love, I learned to love cooking far more than I did before. Like when the kitchen was hmm. cluttered and you have to move everything around to get the one bowl out of the cabinet, um, or if oh, shuffling yeah. everything the in the worst. like the kitchen junk drawer to find the one knife that I always wanted in the first place. I just everything had a place and the counters were clear and I I just loved the act of cooking far more than I did um, when I had more stuff. So, well, you know, it's interesting. I think about the word like well, the word cupboard used to be a cup board. It was a board 
for a cup. And now you've got these monster kitchens and pantries and, and everything. And even I was thinking while you were talking about my wife's grandmother's house was built maybe in the 1920s or 30s. And the closet was literally about the width of my iMac. You know what I mean? Like you had two or three items to hang in there, probably your Sunday clothes, your workday clothes and another set. And things have just changed so radically. So go back 13 years ago. There you are, Joshua, young parent, pastor, leading a church in Vermont. Here you are today. Talk about the difference in your state of mind and how you see life, not just how you see your your environment, but obviously the point is that it makes a whole other philosophy of living, which is really what your new book is about. Um, You know, it became a, um, it became a journey of uh, removing possessions, uh, which freed up money, time, energy. I feel like I became a better example for my kids. Like it just freed up Focus is maybe the best way to say it. No, no. Mm. The best way to say it is I found intentionality in my life in ways I hadn't before. Like when I started taking van loads of things to Goodwill or Salvation Army, I was like, why did I have so much stuff that I didn't need? And it occurred to me that I was just living a pretty unintentional life that advertisers were influencing me, society was influencing me, culture, um, people I was trying to impress. Like I was being motivated by things that weren't um, truest to me or even aligned with what was Mm. most important to me. Um, So began owning less and freeing up my life to pursue things that matter and devote more of my life to it. And then started wrestling with, hey, like possessions isn't the only way that I've become unintentional with my life. Like a bunch of my habits are pretty unintentional. Like this isn't the best way to spend my time. Uh, Even maybe the way I, I, like certainly the way I worked, like what, like what work should I be doing and what work should I be motivated and what should be my motivation to do work? Well, if it's not to make a bunch of money, to buy a bunch of stuff, like where, you know, what, what becomes my motivation there. And so, um, uh, written a couple books about minimalism and, uh, the, the new book, things that matter is all about not just removing possessions, but what are some of the other cultural distractions, uh, that keep us from, from things that matter. So not just possessions, but money and, um, accolades, uh, fear, past mistakes, um, selfish pursuit of happiness, like a lot of different things that I think, when they become the priority, um, we end up regretting them uh, at the end of our lives. Which is a nice segue into, and I, I want to repeat your definition of, you know, how you define uh, minimalist, the intentional promotion of the things we value, we most value by removing anything that distracts us from them. I think that's really solid. That, that, that has a spiritual undertone to it as well. So let's go there. How is this more than just about cleaning out your closet, getting a garage you can park in, cutting down your wardrobe, simplifying your kitchen? How does this apply to the broader orb of life? Yeah, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's, uh, it's about um, taking back control of, of life. Um, it's about deciding what is going to be most important for me, uh, to me, uh, rather than letting someone else dictate it. 
And maybe more than anything else, I was <clears throat> I was uh, starting down this journey, and I remember publishing a blog post one time about how difficult it was to decide what to keep and what to get rid of and what I needed and what I didn't. And uh, a friend of mine, Dustin, uh, he left a comment on the on the article, and he says, it seems to me minimalism would force questions of values upon you. And uh, I said, that is, that is exactly what's happening. Like maybe for the first time, I'm really wrestling with, like, what do I want to accomplish? Why am I here on earth? Like, how am I gifted and created? Like, what is the best good that I can bring into the world? Um, and then what do I need in order to accomplish that? And then what is all these other things that have just become clutter, uh, clutter along the way, far more than just physical clutter, but um, pursuits that are cluttering up my potential um, and robbing me of it. Well, you were a pastor at the time when you started this. How would you have defined the purpose of your life then? And how has it come into a, a sharper or perhaps different focus now? Because you're still very active in yeah. your faith, but this is what you do full time. So how has that actually reshaped your understanding of the purpose and meaning I, You know, of there's there's a, a little bit in terms of uh, what is the the best role that I can play in the kingdom? Uh, what is the the best that I can do for society? Like what's the most good that I can do for the most number of people? There's been uh, a little change in that, although it wasn't intentional and nothing that I pursued, just that I, I was a pastor for 15 years and now I've been a writer for eight or nine years. And there just came a point where like, what, like, what can I do best? And as I always say, there were a lot of pastors who were better than me, but there didn't seem to be so many people writing about minimalism or connecting with minimalism in the way that I do. Um, so a bit of a change in my role there. But overall, um, minimalism didn't necessarily change my values, uh, like faith, mm. family, relationships, making a difference in the world. Like, I think I always would have said those were my most important things. Those are my most important values. But minimalism freed me up. Removing distractions, I think, freed me up to accomplish more in all of those areas than I ever thought I would have accomplished. From, from I think minimalism has made me a better follower of Christ. I think that um, owning less stuff has made me a better father to my kids. Uh, I, I don't know, probably made me a better husband. I hope it's made me a better husband. Certainly freed me up to invest more time and energy into those things. And then, um, yeah, I think the 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 difference I'm making in the world is um, far more than, far different than I, I thought it would be, or at least I've accomplished more in that area than, than I ever thought it would be. So some of that is the removal of like mental clutter and uh, just the overwhelm and and that kind of thing. Can can you say more about that? Like I'm I'm very interested in this because if you talk, I just wrote a book about it a few months ago. But you know most people are overwhelmed, overcommitted, and overworked. Is it is it moving in on that? Territory? Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, I haven't read the book. Um, is it? Um, would you make would you make the case that they're overcommitted, overscheduled to the wrong to the wrong things? Like that's that's the form of it's very um I think when you're walking in 
purpose, when you're walking in intentionality, it doesn't feel like I'm over busy or over committed or over scheduled. Mm. Although there are seasons of life where certainly things are busier or you're more focused on things than other, but um, it feels very, it feels very natural. Like I'm certainly my faith plays a role in this where I feel like I'm just living out what I'm supposed to be living out. Not that it's always easy or never busy, but I'm just, I'm walking the way I'm supposed to be walking. But as I can look back, and even today, it's not like the trappings don't still get in the way, but when I find myself, okay, how do I make more money doing this? Or how do I uh, reach more people, build my following quicker doing this? It's when we get scattered, I think, chasing all those other things is where we start to feel overworked and overcommitted. I guess I was asking about about the book, which yeah, I think I think that's right. The metaphor, although I didn't use it in the book, is you know when it comes to overwhelmed, overcommitted, overworked, most people are stressed out. They've got a level of stress that sometimes tips them into burnout, probably low grade burnout. The closet metaphor comes to mind, right? Where you got 138 things in your closet, and it's that feeling. Even for men, I find this like I don't know what to wear today. There's too much, too many choices here. And then you realize the thing you want to wear is in the laundry, which hasn't been done for a week and a half. And then you realize, oh, you can't start laundry because the laundry from yesterday didn't get moved from the washer to the dryer. So now you got to redo that. And then you're like, oh, I got to go to the dry cleaner. But like, you know, you don't have time to go to the dry cleaner. So it's like that. It's a domino of just cascading things that leaves leaders in leadership in life feeling just completely overwhelmed. And I imagine there's a lot of literature coming out on focus and on simplifying things, how our focus is gone. And it reminds me a little bit, and I want to go there. You've got this quote from an Auschwitz survivor in the book. Mm-hmm. I've come to realize that materialism, and I'm, I'm reading, holds people captive in many of the same ways communism does. The communism I grew up with sought to destroy our personal identities by force. Materialism does the same, but materialism destroys personal identity by choice. Yeah. We chose it. Interesting. A little Orwellian, a little bit like Huxley there for a minute, that that Orwell-Huxley debate that Neil Postman talks about. Um, can you comment on that? Yeah. Like we've chosen a life that is derailing us? Yeah. It's just fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah, it came out. I was uh, I was speaking in Poland uh, at, a, at a father's conference and um, the opening banquet, I uh, sat next to a guy who's going to serve as my translator, and we just started talking. He was about my age, and uh, he said that he he was just recounting growing up in Poland as a teenager, looking outside his window at bread lines, like right outside his apartment. Um, and it was a very and and here's a guy my age, and it was just a like a, a reminder of like. I don't know, Poland's history, you know, like grew up mm. in communism and now they're this free market economy. Um, and so I was commenting, I was talking to the organizer um, uh, during the conference and he's like, let me tell you why I, why I invited you here. Uh, and he, he relayed this story uh, about the Auschwitz survivor who, you know, grew up under communism, but had visited Western Europe. And he said, you know, like we're forced into a certain way of life um, by force, which certainly isn't enjoyable, but I, I'm in Western Europe and they're all living almost exactly the same. They're just choosing it by, 
you know, materialism and advertisements and marketers, and they kind of, you know, the way I say it is, um, you know, the world seems to hijack our passions uh, and direct it towards uh, whatever they want to direct it towards. Um, and suddenly we're all shopping at the same stores and buying the same trends. And even more than that, you know, we're, we're all chasing the same things. We're chasing bigger mm. possessions. We're chasing more money. We're chasing retirement as quickly as we can get to it. We're chasing the $4 million in our retirement account by the time we retire, because that's what Forbes just said we're supposed to have. And, um, and we're all kind of losing our identity uh, along the way, uh, or certainly learning I mean, just from my faith background, I think we're we're missing out on God's call in our life because we're allowing the the world to shape what our passions and, and pursuits are. I read a piece recently that said the fire movement, financial independence, retire early, is starting to lose steam mm-hmm. a little bit because people who are retiring at 33, 35 are like, oh boy, you got a whole chapter on that too. You call it uh, Beaches Get Boring. Uh, I, I've always said to my friends, you know, this is my retirement project. And they're like, what do you, what do you, you know, are you ever going to quit? I'm like, you can only lie on a beach for so long. And I get the opportunity to lie on a beach for a week or two a year. Like that's plenty. Um, talk about that a little bit, because I think what you've written in Things That Matter is a book that really points us to how minimalism can really get us to what life is supposed to be about and what it is supposed to be about. So what is, you know, what is the challenge with this idea that beaches aren't all they're cracked up? Yeah, you know, I, I learned it, uh, probably two different things kind of come together at once. Um, the idea of owning less, so what's money for? So what's work for, if not to make the money to buy the things? Uh, and then, I, man, I was probably shaped as much as anything else um, by my grandfather who um, worked until he was 99 and a half. He worked, uh, he always said he wanted to work three days before his funeral. It's when he wanted to retire three days before my funeral. And he made it about 10 days uh, before before his funeral, working 40, 50 hours a week. And um, uh, he would always say, you know, Joshua, uh, retirement was invented by the politicians, which should tell you everything you need to know about it. And uh, <laughs> which really sent me studying and and it's true. Like it, it was like literally invented in Germany in the late 1800s where- uh, Did not know and that. And it was about no. um, moving older people out of work so that younger people had jobs that they could that they could move into. And then uh, it actually became like a, a vote-getting venture. Like if you're over 65, you won't have to work anymore. We'll pay for you to, to not work so that younger people can move in and I can get all your votes uh, with your 65. And so literally it's about like a 100, 100, 120 year old experiment. And now it is CNN called Early Retirement, The New American Dream. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I'm just convinced that, that work, it's tough to enjoy work when the whole goal of work is to stop doing it as quickly as you can. If the goal of work is to make enough money so I don't have to work, then there's just no lasting joy in this. It just becomes a thing I do and I worry about having enough money so that I can quit when I'm 65 and just the obsession with it. Um, we did a survey for the book and uh, close to 55, 60% of people said that if they, uh, their dream in life, they would much rather retire early 
uh, than work later on in life. And I, I just think that we see work um, incorrectly when we see it that way. That that work is mm. that work is love. Like I I do what I'm good at, so I can bring the best into the world, so that someone else can do what they're good at, and all of us benefit, right? Like you go hunt and I'll go build houses and you go farm and we'll trade goods at the end and we'll have better farming and better houses and better dentistry and better accounting and better lawyers. And everyone just does what they're good at and, and all of society benefits in the long run. And I just think that there's meaning in that and there's fulfillment in that and there's joy in that um, rather than uh, trying to see how quickly I can I can get out of it. Well, it's interesting. There's a meism underneath that. Right. There's a meism to the accumulation. There's a meism in I need so much stuff that I've got to go park it at a self-storage place. There's a meism in that the ultimate goal of me making money is so that I can buy things, you know, as they say, that I don't really need to impress people I don't even like. And there's me getting across the finish line so I can go lie on a beach. Yeah, there's something broken yeah. with that vision. Yeah, yeah. Dorothy Sayers uh, wrote about that around uh, World War II. Um, she back in Great Britain, like she was writing about how work has become selfish. Like I go to work mm. to make the money so I can buy the house or buy the car or buy the vacation or retire early. And when when this is our our understanding of the the goal of work is just to make the paycheck that then the greatest form of happiness that we can find in work is all selfish. Like, well, how does it serve me? Where, I mean, the, the greatest joy that we find in life is when we're serving others and when we're helping others. And all the studies show this over and over again, that, that the, the greatest fulfillment comes when we're, when we're helping others and serving others. And when we start to see our work, regardless of what it is, whether we're a pastor or a CEO or a landscaper or the the grocery store clerk or the teacher or the dentist or the architect like I'm I I'm serving you uh, by doing this job and I, I get compensated for it which allows me to go you know buy the food that this farmer graciously did by serving me and the grocery store set up by serving me and um, it's just a very different way to to approach it work and and in that way, I, I think it, you know, I, I hope that it starts to remove a little bit of, of competition, you know, of, hey, I, I have this skill that allows me to make more money. Um, man, if we've seen anything in our world, like the most essential people among us are not necessarily the ones making, making the most money, um, but we all should be walking in that with what we like to do and are good at doing. And in this way, we, um, we love one another and we benefit society. It's just a selfless way to view work. You note in the book that America has grown a lot wealthier in the last 50 years, but we have not grown more generous. Generous, I should say. Why, why is that, Joshua? Um, <clears throat> you know, I think... Um, uh, I was going to say um, probably two ways to answer the question. You know, I, I think from yeah. my from my faith based uh, spiritual background, I, I I think that 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 this factors into it. I, you know, I think when you um, even someone who's a Christian doesn't necessarily give more money when they start making more money, and I I think there's a a piece where the world 
the world tastes good. You know, I mean, I, I think that the, mm. there's nice restaurants to eat at and there's really fun cars to drive and there's really lavish vacations that we can take. And I, got, I don't know if you've seen this in your own life. I've certainly seen it in my life. But once you get a taste of those things, uh, they become hard to separate from, almost like the the world mm-hmm. gets a hold of us in that way. And it's tough to not keep going on those really nice vacations. And so spiritually, um, you know, I think the, the world just gets a, a better grip on our heart. Um, I think there's another aspect, even if you're not um, spiritual or, or faith-based, where there's just a reality that um, money never provides what we want it to provide. Um, and by that, I mean, 80% of Americans report financial-related stress. And I often wonder why Why is that the case? Like, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. Why are 80% of us stressed about money? Like, just look around. Mm-hmm. We have food. We have shelter. We have clothing. I mean, I've been all over the world, and I can tell you that Americans aren't strapped for money and things, and yet for some reason we're still stressed about money and I think it's because we keep looking for money to provide what it's never going to provide. We look to money to provide happiness, and we look to money to provide security. And we think if I make that much money or once I save that much money, I will feel secure or I will be happier with my life. And um, we reach that level of money and we don't feel more secure. We don't feel happier. No. Um, uh, the Atlantic once did a survey of people over uh, $2 million uh, net worth, and uh, they all said they'd be happier if they had 25% more. Like, it doesn't matter where you are on the scale. We reach that next level. We don't feel happier. We don't feel more secure. And rather than saying, I should stop looking for happiness and security in money, we just say, oh, I just don't have enough. I, I had the wrong goalpost. If I was making this much or if I had that much saved, uh, I'd feel happy and I'd feel secure. And so we're all stressed that we don't have enough uh, when, when the reality is that we do. And so back to your original question, I think it, it just becomes... <laughs> Like culturally speaking, we just think we're going to be happier if we have more money. And 80% of Americans, uh, we the survey we did for this book, 80% of Americans say that they would be happier if they had more money. Um, and the two thoughts of, I'll be happier with more money and I'm going to be a more generous person just can't coexist in, in our minds, it's one or the other. Either I'm going to be happier with more money or I'm going to be happier and more fulfilled by becoming a generous person. And um, I contend. I see generosity also as the antidote to my greed um, because I think we're all a little bit greedy. Do you have a line or do you have advice about when a vacation, let's assume someone can pay cash for a vacation. So it's not a visa vacation. It's not you know, where they're going into debt for it. Is there a line at which you think, hey, that's too much or that becomes self-indulgence? Like, I believe in self-care. I also think you can enjoy this life a little bit as well as give back. Do you have a line? Because I think you're right. Vacations are a luxury that more and more people are indulging. It used to be an annual vacation. 
Now it's like two or three times a year, four times a year, super high-end resorts, et cetera, et cetera. And I've, I've been to a few very nice resorts myself. So I'm asking this personally yeah. as well. Where Where is there a line or do you have a line or would you suggest one? Uh, n- no. I mean, if there's a dollar amount line, I, uh, I don't have it. Um, interestingly, I would... I would draw a different line today than I probably would have 20 years ago when I was a, a struggling youth pastor making $18,000 a year. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's very interesting how today, it does creep, today the right? vacation I, I think is not extravagant would have been extravagant to me uh, 20 years ago. Um, uh, this is not about, um, the book isn't, uh, minimalism isn't about um self-deprivation for self-deprivation's sake. It's not about sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice's sake. Uh, It is about uh, living our lives and using our resources for the things that matter most, the things that we'll be most proud of when we get to the end of our lives. Um, Mm. And I have come to realize that can I afford it is is not always the best filter. Um, it's, it's an important filter. Like we shouldn't buy things that we can't afford. But when can I afford it is the only filter that we use, uh, I think that we don't make the best decisions in life. So should I buy that new car? Sure, I have the cash. I can afford it. So I'm going to buy that new car. Can I go on this incredibly lavish vacation? Well, I have the money. I can afford it, so I'm going to go. And I, I think probably the better question to ask is, um, what if I didn't? I, I guess that's, what if I didn't? Like, what if I didn't go on that vacation, what could I use the money for instead? If I didn't buy that, that bigger house, uh, what could I use the money for instead? What could I use the time for instead? And and maybe the maybe the answer isn't something better. Like maybe the answer is no. It's my son's senior year in high school. This is the last time we're going to be going on a trip together. I want it to be a a meaningful moment that that we can look back on and and celebrate as a family. And so this is the best thing that I can do with my money and with my time this year. But there may be a, a different time where you're like, man, I could if we if we just went. Um, if we just went to the other side of the States rather than the other side of the world, I could build a well in the village of Africa and 5,000 people could have clean water. And you know what? Maybe just going to Vermont in the fall would be just as enjoyable as Rome for two weeks. And this is the good Mm. that I could do with the money instead. So, I mean, I'm not here to, you know, make the decision on what it should be, but it's a way to think about it. Yeah. It's a values filter. So you cover a number of different things. You've got a section or two on fear. You talk about wealth. You talk about fame as being something that, or being known that can get in the way of a meaningful life and things that really matter. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up, Joshua? Um. You know the uh, the the thing that I the the name of the book is things that matter overcoming distraction to pursue a more meaningful life, and uh, I think most people hear the title and they say, "Okay, good, you're going to talk about technology, and and how my phone has become a distraction." And there is a whole chapter on 
technology because I think it's an important one and the trivial. And I mean, I think we've been dealing with that for centuries, you know, um, Mm. probably when the radio came out, they're like, what a distraction radio has been and television. And um, so there's, there's, that's an important section, but I really the think, I think the book gets into to deeper issues, like you mentioned, or ones that I would hope stir up more thoughts and, and spark more interest of, hey, is my pursuit of money, is my pursuit of accolades and fame, and is my pursuit of happiness, or how are some of the past mistakes? 60% of Americans say their past mistakes are keeping them from uh, living out their fullest potential today. And um, so what are these things that I'm I'm... I'm wasting my life uh, pursuing mm. um, when there are far greater things that I could do. Maybe a little bit about the, you know, the the parable in the Bible about selling the field for the for the one great pearl. You know, I, I suppose that's a little bit what the uh, what the book is about. Um, what's the what's the field that we should sell um, so that we can find the the one thing in life that's that's most important? So, why did you write this one? Was it? The people you've met, I mean, you have an audience of millions and millions and millions of people who follow your work. Is it hearing too many heartbreak stories? Does it come out of your own pain and journey? Like, what was the motivation for writing it? Because you're right. It's not like a, it's, it's, I know when I endorsed the book, when I blurbed it, it was like, this is something I wish I had when I was 25, because you, you figure out some of this stuff, not all of this stuff later in your 40s and 50s. But what what was the impetus to writing this book? Uh, it was a it would be a buildup of a, of a couple different things that all came to uh, one moment. Like it was, um, hey, my possession to become a distraction. Uh, I'm owning fewer things. I'm able to pursue things with greater passion that that actually matter in life. Hey, what am I, how does this apply to my money and relationships and calendar and what are some of these other things that they're tripping me up? And so it was a topic that I was writing about when I was writing about minimalism that that spurred up. I think that's one of the reasons people keep coming back to becomingminimalist.com. It's not just about decluttering the kitchen, but it's really about living a, a meaningful, intentional life and um, finding some of these other things around the edges. Uh, I used to lead a, a retreat, uh, a weekend retreat, and uh, I would talk about minimalism, removing distractions. And then Sunday morning um, for the weekend retreat was always okay, let's talk about some bigger things that also might keep us from our potential. Uh, and then I was in a, a, a workshop in um, Phoenix about three years ago on work. And, uh, and the guy said, close your eyes and answer this question. If you were to die today, what is the one thing you would regret not having finished? And uh, one lady at the table talked about a couple art things that she always dreamt of doing, uh, uh, a mother at the table talked about, I would regret not preparing my kids for life in these very specific ways. And, uh, and for me, it was this book. Uh, it was, I, mm. I would regret not putting these thoughts down on paper in a helpful way for others, something that, that these thoughts would outlive me. Um, I, I would regret that they died in my brain <laughs> rather than, mm -hmm. um, rather than put out in the world. So um, probably just the the years of wrestling with this, the the retreat where it kind of came together, and then that that one moment of um, this is the book that I need to write, and uh, I would feel bad if I didn't. And I, I just love I did an interview a podcast with a guy named um, Mike Vardy, who I've known for a decade, and uh, he said, Joshua, you've written about minimalism, but uh, after reading this book, 
I could only think that this is the book that you were born to write. Like this is the message that you've been bringing out into the world more than how do you declutter a kitchen? And um, so I just, yeah, uh, meant a lot, his phrasing, because I kind of feel the same way about it. It's a great book. So the book is called Things That Matter. And Joshua Becker, where can people find you online? What's the easiest place? Yeah, becomingminimalist.com is home base for me and everything uh, flows through there. I'm I'm about it. I'm in a lot of different places, but everything flows through that webpage. So thanks. That's fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Uh, Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yeah, that was really intriguing, wasn't it? We got show notes for you. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 482. By the way, that's a brand new website. If you haven't checked it out yet, make sure you check it out. And... Uh, I have got another episode coming up next time, of course. We are going to talk to Francesca Gino. She is an award-winning researcher who focuses on why people make the decisions they do. She's a professor at Harvard Business School and uh, also the author of most recently, Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules in Working in Life. And what human nature uh, does for us is that once we have a view or we have an opinion or we have a decision that we want to make or we have a preference, we are very quick to recruit every single piece of information that suggests that that opinion, that way of thinking is correct. And so we look at everything that is different as something to reject simply because of that inconsistency. And so I feel like fighting these common myths and embracing conflicts with more of an open mind requires us to move away from what is an instinctual reaction, if you will, to a learned behavior. So if we just are left to our own devices, our human nature brings us into places that are not that helpful when it comes to creating dialogue or having conversations across difference. Also coming up, Levi Lusco and Voskamp. Uh, who else have we got? We've got, uh, oh, Patrick Lencioni is going to come back, Andy Stanley, Susan Kane, Chris Bale. Fascinating research I got tripped up on. And speaking of trip, Trip Crosby is also coming up on the podcast. Hey, if you subscribe, you get that automatically every time. You don't even have to think about it. And that's what I do to all the podcasts that I appreciate. Thank you for all of you who have left ratings and reviews. I really appreciate it. So does my team. It helps us get noticed out there. And if you like this episode and really want to dive deeper into leadership, head on over to theartofleadershipacademy.com. Go there today and you will get access to a growing library of premium on-demand courses, live monthly coaching hosted by me, I will train your staff or give you my notes so you can train your staff in a monthly staff training session. And you also get, I think best of all, a community of top tier leaders. So many leaders who are doing what you do in small business and in the church world. And you can learn from each other. It's all for one low annual fee. You'll be shocked at how low it is. We did our best to bring this to you at great value. Head on over to theartofleadershipacademy.com. We are very excited about what's going on in there. And I'd love to welcome you there. So that's sort of our premium stop for everything that we do now, theartofleadershipacademy.com. Thanks so much for listening, leaders. I really do hope this has helped you. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep doing this. So thanks for all your encouragement, your support, your notes, your friendships, your ratings, your reviews, all of that. And we'll catch you next time. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.